Hello, and welcome to the PJ Pod. This episode is a PJ Learning Podcast, and today we're focusing on changes to the management of type 2 diabetes. Earlier this year, NICE provided an update to the type 2 diabetes in adults management guidance for the first time since 2015. These recommendations are set to impact one of the largest patient groups in the UK, with an estimated 4.4 million patients living with type 2 diabetes. In this episode of the PJ Pod, we'll be exploring the main changes and the practical implications for your practice and telling you everything you need to know, with the help of some experts. Every pharmacist needs to be aware of these changes and to think about how this change is impacting in their role and what they're doing to support people with diabetes. Hopefully it's made quite a few of the points a lot clearer compared to the previous guideline updates and we now um, hopefully will start advocating the use of these recommendations to try to help us all think differently in terms of managing our diabetes patients. I'm Caitlin Killen, Assistant Clinical Editor for the PJ. First off, I caught up with Michelle Lamb, Pharmacy Team Leader for Education and Training at St George's University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. She started off by explaining some of the key changes to the guidelines and their implications for practice. First of all, it is the individualised approach to diabetes care. So this was already mentioned in the guideline update back in 2015. This time around, it's really putting more emphasis on the importance to take into account of the individual's comorbidities, risks and benefits uh, when we discuss with the person in selecting the best drug treatment for them. Secondly, is really linking in with individualising therapy. So the general recommendations on HbA1c thresholds for intensifying treatment have not changed, but it is putting more emphasis on setting an individualised HbA1c target with the person and work with them to achieve and maintain it. The update guideline has included a patient decision aid to support these discussions, uh, which we will go into a bit more details a bit later. In regards to setting an agreed A1C target, in addition to those who will benefit with an improvement in glycemic control, it is also thinking about those who will benefit from less intense control, so in particular those who are at risk of adverse effects from tight glycemic control. So the guideline recommends relaxing the A1C target in people who are older or frail, uh, especially if they're at risk of developing hypoglycemia from tight blood glucose control, or if they have significant comorbidities, that intensive control um, would actually not be appropriate, or if they have a reduced life expectancy. Previously, Studies have demonstrated a link between continuous blood glucose monitoring and increased glycemic control. Michelle explains how the updated recommendations have clarified which patients should be offered routine and continuous blood glucose monitoring. The guideline now has provided more clarity on who should be routinely monitoring their blood glucose. Uh, It is recommended that people in type 2 diabetes should not be offered self-monitoring of blood glucose unless they are on insulin therapy or experiencing hypoglycemic episodes or those who are on oral medications such as a sulfonylurea that may increase their hypoglycemia risk when driving or operating machinery. 
They also mentioned about continuous glucose monitoring, which recommends that clinicians should offer actually intermittently scanned continuous glucose monitoring, which is commonly referred to as the flash glucose monitoring to people who have got type 2 diabetes who meet the following criteria as well. So either they have recurrent or severe hypoglycemia or they have impaired hypoglycemia awareness. Those who cannot self-monitor their blood glucose by the usual finger-pricking tests or, for example, those who have learning disability or cognitive impairment or dexterity problems but could use the intermittently scanned glucose monitoring or someone could scan for them. Another group would be otherwise, um, they would need to self-monitor at least eight times a day using the finger-pricking blood test method. The main focus of this updated guidance is the wider use of combination SGL2 inhibitor and metformin therapy in cardiovascular disease or high-risk patients. To get to grips with these new patient group recommendations, I spoke to Sally Kavanagh, an advanced clinical pharmacist at Sheffield Teaching Hospital and clinical lecturer at the University of Huddersfield, who was a member of the NICE committee for this update. The difference lies in that those where we know there is established disease, the evidence is much stronger for the benefit of these medicines than those that are categorised as at risk. And that's why the guideline now says for those that have an established cardiovascular disease, the best thing to do for a person is not have clinical inertia, not wait for a glycemic control to change, but actually treat the SGLT2 as a cardioprotective, cardiopreventative medicine and take that right up front with the metformin. So it's not about hitting glycemic targets, it's not about numbers, it's about using these medicines in a new way. I wanted to understand more about the evidence that these changes were based on. So I asked Michelle about the trial data that has led to these updated recommendations. Yeah, so um, it's a very good question. So data back to 2015, there's the landmark trial that excited everyone working in the diabetes field, uh, which was the first SGLT2 inhibitor, the EMPA-RIG cardiovascular outcome trials, which demonstrated significant reduction in cardiovascular mortality and morbidity with the use of ampagliflozin in those with type 2 diabetes. This trial was revolutionary and has made us all very curious whether there is a class effect with the SGLT2 inhibitors providing cardiovascular benefits, which have not really been seen in any other hypoglycemic agents before. Then comes with the subsequent studies such as the um, debagliflozin trial and the CANVAS trial for canagliflozin. They both showed positive cardiovascular disease results, showing the, the cardiovascular protection with the other SGLT2 inhibitors as well. And in addition to cardiovascular benefits uh, with this class of agent, there is also strong evidence in improving renal outcomes, so reducing the progression of diabetic nephropathy and end-stage kidney failure, uh, such as results shown in the DAPA-CKD and the CREDENCE trial. So the evidence is there, but what does that mean in practice for patients on established therapies? We should be switching patients. What we should be doing is we should be looking at patients when they come into our pharmacies, into our clinics now, accepting that we need to reassess them. Where are they at now? What is their cardiovascular risk? And they may be already on an SGLT2 or they may be on something else. And we should be doing medicines optimization. Great phrase for a pharmacist, isn't it? Great opportunity for pharmacists as well in saying that actually 
we now have new evidence about the benefits of an SGLT2, this group of medicines for people with existing cardiac disease. And we now know that these may be better for you than the existing medicines that you're on. And so it's an opportunity to really rationalise and optimise the medicine that a person's on. So pharmacists should work with patients to manage this switch. But how should they assess if it's appropriate for certain patient groups? The guideline has now a very good visual algorithm to support clinicians to choose uh, drug treatments based on individuals' cardiovascular assessment. So it is in the guideline that for adults with type 2 diabetes who have a Q-risk score of more than 10% in those who are age 40 or above, or um, if they've got elevated lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease, which is defined as the presence of one or more of cardiovascular risk factors in someone who's under 40. So, for example, some of the cardiovascular disease risk factors are um, hypertension, dyslipidemia, if they're smoking, if they are obese, or if they've got family history in um, a first-degree relative of premature cardiovascular disease. While cardiovascular risk must be considered, Michelle also told me that this combination therapy won't be appropriate for everyone. Yes, so if we are initiating or switching to an SGLT2 in someone who is already on metformin, it is necessary to check their kidney function and review those with unstable renal function or those at risk of um, getting an AKI, acute kidney injury. So as it's always been, that's not been changed. So metformin is contraindicated in those with EGFR less than 13 mils per minute. However, for um, across the class of the SGLT2 inhibitors, the license used in renal impairment varies. So please do check, um, consult the individual SPC for that. Uh, for example, canagliflozin is now licensed to be used in EGFR less than 13 mils per minute at a reduced dose. So um, do really have to check against the specific SPC to make sure what's the uh, renal cutoff for, for their use. So we've comprehensively covered the basis for these recommendations and the resources available to guide which patients should and shouldn't be switched. But how should this switch actually be managed with patients? What information should be communicated to them? Here's Sally again to explain. So I think a really important thing is it is part of an active conversation that we're having joined with the patient um, on their annual review, on their diabetes review. It's not about bringing people into clinic tomorrow and increasing the workload. It's about reviewing them at an appropriate time. And what we've got now um, with the new NICE guidance or the updated NICE guidance as it is, is there's a lot more patient decision aids there. The patient decision tools are really useful about helping a person to establish what's important to them, what their concerns are, what their health goals are at that time. And health goals can change. So this is why it should be reviewed each year. You know, people's needs and options do change. So it's about talking to them regularly about this but using the patient decision aids talking to them about the fact that yes we have this new information we have this new evidence of benefit and would they like to be considered for this change in medicine as Sally touched on the new guidance includes a patient aid to assist patients in setting blood glucose targets that are appropriate for them uh, so the patient aid explains how to decide what is the most appropriate HbA1c target for that individual. So again, it's empowering the individual to make a decision with the healthcare professional. 
and how they feel is right for them. So there is a diagram within the aid uh, to help the individual to come to a conclusion using uh, there's there's a set of statements. Essentially, um, the individual will mark against each statement where they're at along the spectrum. Michelle also highlighted that these aids were making a difference in practice. It does actually have a large impact on on clinical practice, uh, especially in primary care, as we expect primary care clinicians to look after the non, relatively non-complex cases, and those who have been uh, perhaps diet controlled or um, and now need to consider starting drug treatments, or those who are not well controlled on a single diabetes agent. There needs to be a timely and ongoing education and support for these primary care clinicians to take up these guideline recommendations and start adopting this approach um, in optimising the medication based on individuals' cardiovascular risk. So we talked about the combination of SGL2 inhibitors and metformin and how patients can be supported to make these decisions. Another noteworthy aspect of the new guidance was the clarification about the place of GLP-1 agonists in therapy. Basically, any patient now who has been started on treatment with an SGL-2 and metformin at the beginning and they are then considered for next stages of therapy because they're not meeting their glycemic individual goals and they have, you know, they do meet the weight threshold, they are somebody who's obese, a GLP-1 can still be considered for those and they're still going to get all the same benefits that they did when we considered them before in the past. Interestingly, the thing that did get updated in this guideline, which is different from the previous guideline from a glycemic management point of view, is previously, um, if following NICE guideline correctly, you could only use a GLP-1 if you were using metformin and a sulfonylurea. So if you were on any other combination of orals, you weren't to use a GLP-1 in line with that guidance. Now, in recognition of the value of SGLT2s in the cardiovascular protective thing, that requirement to just have metformin and sulfonylureas was removed. So actually, that's why I would say they're probably more accessible now, because you could have a patient on different combinations of oral medicines that are not meeting their personal goals and now a a GLP-1 can be added into that. Interestingly, NICE's recommendations for GLP-1 agonists differ from American and European guidance, who in some cases recommend it as a first-line agent. There is no dispute that GLP-1s are an effective medicine for glycemic control, they're really effective for weight management, and they're also really effective as cardiovascular protective medicines. The reason NICE didn't recommend them higher up in treatment, like the international guidelines, and sort of put them at the point of initiation, purely comes down to when the economic analysis was done, it came through that the GLP-1s as a class were not cost-effective. When NICE works in what they refer to as qualies, and there are thresholds for those qualies, and actually the GLP-1s didn't meet those thresholds of being cost-effective. So they're not saying they're not effective, because they are, and there is good evidence. But when we're looking at an NHS system that has to serve our entire population, doing everything out of one pot of money, as it were, these just did not prove to be as cost-effective as some other medicines may be and the the SGLT2s came out really strongly as cost effective. The PJ recently published a summary of everything that pharmacists need to know about the use of GLP-1 agonists in adults with type 2 diabetes to support their safe prescribing and use. 
a link to this article can be found in the show notes. It's also important to consider the use of these drugs in specific patient groups. The guidance provided additional detail on the use of SGL2 inhibitors in people with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. So the really important about the SGLT2 inhibitors and CKD or SGLT2 inhibitors and the cardiovascular disease is that we are using these as protective medicines. We are not using them as glycemic control. So the first thing is if you're using it for the cardiovascular benefit or you're using it for the renal benefit, you need to document that that's what it's being used for and therefore we're using them in this protective way. Now, the guidelines also came out at a similar time as the update for NICE here about using an SGLT2 in renal disease. And at the moment, it is saying those patients with established renal disease to offer or those at risk to consider in a very similar way. And it is, again, looking at the patient's ACR. Have they had that done recently? Is that an action for a pharmacist where they can get that ACR added onto the bloods for the patient to establish whether or not someone needs would benefit from an SGLT2? And my other big thing about this at the moment is each of the medicines has a really different licence. And that licence is going to change based on the most recent clinical trials that have been published and whether or not they've published their renal trial. So I'm not going to sit now and say this one's licensed and this one isn't because as you come to use this podcast, the guidance might have changed in that time. And that's how fast things seem to be working at the moment. So that's all the changes to the updated recommendations relating to medicines. But I also wanted to know from Sally about the role of patient education and social prescribing in diabetes management and how these changes in care should be communicated to patients. I think patient education is key right from the beginning and that's never going to change whatever guideline we use or wherever stage we are with the patient in their sort of life of having diabetes. I think one of the things that's really important is that patient education continues all the way through. So we talk about structured education programmes and ensuring patients get access to them in a way that's meaningful to them, whether that be attending days or doing online learning and things like that. So as pharmacists, we still need to be part of that education package. So whether that's helping to signpost them to what's available to them in your area, um, and that can differ where you are in the country, to being able to support a patient with good knowledge yourself about What is a healthy lifestyle when you're living with diabetes? What is important? Social prescribing enables healthcare professionals across sectors to refer patients to a range of services beyond medicines that may benefit the management of their condition. But Sally told me she didn't think enough people were aware of these measures. No, I don't think people are aware. And it's really interesting that there are so many social prescribers now set up in PCNs that can support people living with diabetes, but there's a lack of knowledge of who is in your team, how do you access that social prescriber and that's a key outcome that people can go to now is find out who your social prescribers are, what is available in your area, how do you refer a person into that service, Um, can you be part of that service Um, and you know what what offer can you give yourself um, within that. So I don't think people are aware of quite the importance of social prescribing but I think in diabetes It's a key part of getting on board with the lifestyle elements of it. A theme throughout this podcast has been the fast-moving pace of research and recommendations surrounding the care of people with type 2 diabetes. But you might be wondering how you can stay up to date with developments. It is evolving and I wish there was a really simple answer other than look it up. But we are pharmacists. We are the best at doing that and it's okay 
not to know at this minute which one of them's licensed and it's okay to go i can't remember the thresholds for the renal things but what it, we can do is go to the spc and check at this moment in time is the drug i'm using licensed for the cardiovascular benefit or is it licensed for the renal benefit or is it only licensed for the glycemic benefits and just check it's all clearly there in the spc but it is changing it feels like weekly but it's not it's every few months there seems to be a new update but it is moving very quickly at the moment and there are more trials to be published as well so to summarize the important learning points from this episode the new guidance emphasizes the importance of individualized diabetes care and supporting patients to set appropriate hyperglycemic targets it includes a decision aid to assist patients with this aspect of care Data from landmark trials has resulted in recommendations for wider use of combination SGL2 inhibitor and metformin therapy in cardiovascular disease or high-risk patients due to the cardioprotective effect of this class. Pharmacists can support the switch of patients on established therapy who may benefit from this combination. The guidance has provided clarity on the place of GLP-1 agonists in therapy and has made them more accessible in some cases. For anyone wanting to find more information, we'll provide a link to the NICE guidance and relevant PJ resources in the show notes. A big thank you to our experts, Michelle and Sally. Please do follow us on whatever podcast platform you use and let us know what you thought of this learning episode on social media using the hashtag PJPod. Until next time, goodbye.